From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 170 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today during this spooky season of Halloween? That's actually what I was going to say. I'm doing good, but I'm I'm feeling spooky tonight. <laughs> are you? So so what is it like to feel spooky? <laughs> uh, it's just uh, I both feel scared, but also have the ability to feel like I could scare someone as well, too. And I'm sure I do that all the time anyways, but I'm feeling it deep inside me right now. Okay. Well, well, neighbors of Craig, you've been warned. <laughs> well, it's that season when the crypt doors creak and the tombstones quake, so we've invited one of our favorite foolish mortals, Jeff Bam, author of The Unauthorized Story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion, to materialize on Connecting with Walt, to talk with us about the Haunted Mansion. Jeff is also the creator of DoomBuggies.com and is one of the hosts of the wildest podcast in the wilderness, Mousestalgia. Jeff, welcome to Connecting with Walt. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to talk to you about, you know, those grim grinning ghosts. Uh, it's the season, right? So, yeah, thanks it for having is. me. Oh, we're delighted to have you. It def- It is the season. And for many Disney theme park guests, the Haunted Mansion is their favorite attraction. So, yeah. so they're in their heyday right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when did your interest in the Haunted Mansion begin? And how did it develop and grow over the years? Yeah, you know, um, for me, it was probably a lot to do with D- Disneyland Records, actually. Um, I was, n- I'm, I was a timid child. I wasn't really, um, into haunted houses and that type of thing. My parents ran kind of a youth group, so they would put on a haunted house every, every Halloween. And, you know, I was a really little kid and I could remember kind of seeing all the big teenagers wearing all this makeup and it really kind of freaked me out. Right. And so, <laughs> uh, but, but because they were youth leaders and had this haunted house, they also had the chilling, thrilling sounds of the haunted house Disneyland record. We had that, um, you know, all the time because they use that as a soundtrack. And then we also had the Haunted Mansion record. Um, I, I, you know, I was always kind of a monster kid. I loved monsters and, you know, Frankenstein and Universal Monsters and all of that. I just wasn't a scary, put me in a haunted house kid, you know. So uh, the Haunted Mansion record really blew my mind. I mean, it was, the art was amazing. I learned how to draw partly from that record by tracing all the pictures in it. Um, and then the chilling, thrilling sound, you know, I just, I loved monsters and Halloween. I always loved Halloween and going to the drugstore and buying, you know, vampire teeth and makeup and cool stuff. And I think those things kind of are the foundation of why I finally, you know, became this Haunted Mansion fan because when I was in high school and started to take a, an interest in um, design and marketing and merchandising and that kind of thing, um, I started collecting Disneyana and um, 
and, and you know, and my interest in Disneyland and haunted stuff, and you know, it all kind of came together with the haunted mansion. And I mean, that's one of the trails into the haunted mansion for my life. There's a few different <laughs> trails that it took me there, but I think that's probably the strongest and earliest, earliest one. Okay. Now, in your book, The Unauthorized Story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion, you write that in every version of Walt's concepts for a theme park, there was always a haunted house. And you believe this stemmed from Walt's experiences in his youth. And would you tell our listeners about those experiences? Yeah, I would be glad to. Now, I, I have to say that this is... um these are my theories and ideas. Like no one really knows a lot, a lot about, except for what Walt, you know, wrote and, and, and said, you know, it's the kind of things, the kind of things where we kind of presume what he might have thought, you know, that's a risky thing to do. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I just dive in there with the book. Um, you know, and there's a little bit to the story. So one of the stories is that, um, Herb Ryman, you know, worked with Walt Disney, of course, and worked really closely with him. And he told, um, one of his confidants, a story that Walt Disney used to talk to him about this, this property in Kansas City that he remembered from, um, when he was kind of working there. And because he worked with a kid or, you know, a buddy of his that worked in movie theaters who was a relative of the family that owned this big mansion. And it was called the Sour Castle. Um, you know, and, it was built in the late 1800s, um, and kind of a, a little Kansas City hilltop. Um, so there were, you know, anytime there's kind of a castle building built, you know, or a mansion built on a hilltop, you know, everyone knows that eventually it's going to get stories about being a haunted house, right? And so, um, that it was no different in Walt's time, you know, and the fact that he kind of knew a, a buddy of his who was, I, I think a grandchild of one of the uh, owners of the mansion. I think that's how it went. Um, you know, it kind of, to me, it kind of indicates, and also the fact that Herb Ryman had told his friend, he said, like, yeah, Walt Disney used to talk to me about, you know, there was this cool old haunted house in, in Kansas City. Um, so that's one thing that, you know, it's, it's possibly something that Walt Disney had in mind. Yeah. If nothing else, it's just the idea that when you grow up in these towns and you know, yeah, every town has like, you know, the, the pharmacy down the corner and maybe the organ store, but also, you know, up on the hill, a haunted house. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if nothing else, you know, maybe just that idea was in Walt's mind. One other thing that I think is really interesting. Um, and I, I found this researching myself and I read it and it kind of stopped me cold. And I was like, I can't believe I'm reading this. And I've shown it to a couple people you know, an Imagineer who was his dead. I mean, who is dead set convinced that Walt Disney saw this article and then other people, you know, aren't sure. And I'm not even sure, but. The Kansas City Times in January 1921, when Walt would have been there, like 1921, Walt was in Kansas City at the time, um, kind of trying to get his start, uh, I, th I think with a buy works, you know, and I think they were working together by then trying to, mm -hmm. you know, work on artwork for movie studios and stuff. The Kansas City Times printed this story and the headline is England's ghosts must seek new haunting grounds. And it says, um, part of part of, you know it's kind of a long article and it describes some of these mansions that are being torn down in england but the the gist of the story is that um there's all these family houses and mansions in britain that have been there for generations with family spooks and ghosts and they're all being demolished to make way for skyscrapers and apartments right and so he says you know where are all these ghosts going to go and then at that very end of the article he says you know they might have to travel over to america and it's just really interesting because it's almost exactly what walt disney said in an interview in the 50s when he was talking about why is he going to build 
the haunted mansion. He says, well, all these places are being destroyed in Europe because of World War II. I mean, he updated it to the time he was at. And he said, you know, where are these ghosts going to go? Uh, we're going to build a place for them to come in, in Disneyland. So, you know. Maybe that's just a, a historical rhyme, but it happened to be a newspaper, happened to be in Kansas City. Walt would have been paying attention to the media. I just thought that was interesting. So, you know, none of this is, you can like say definitely anything to do with Walt. You know, who knows if Walt Disney saw any of these, the Sour Castle or this newspaper. But, um, you know, it's just interesting to me. It's interesting things in the history around his time that could have led to, could have led to some of the history of the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that does make sense that Walt would have seen that newspaper article, because you're right, in a BBC interview in 1958, he, re yeah. he refers to it, and it's it does seem like it's almost word for word. It's so close. It's really interesting, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, who, who knows? We'll never know, but it's just really interesting. Yeah. And it, it seems like work on the Haunted Mansion just came at an extremely hectic time for the company that affected everything about it, its story development, its design, and its construction more so than any other attraction up to that time. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because it seems like Walt Disney always wanted that haunted house in there, but it wasn't the most critical thing. You know what I mean? So Ken Anderson, the most critical thing were these other dark rides to open Disneyland, but there had always been a haunted house, you know, somewhere stuck in like a, a concept map or some concept art, you know, there would be this haunted house. So, you know, Walt Disney just kind of knew, well, there has to be a haunted house in our theme park, but it was never like the thing to do. And finally, you know, 1957 is when he said, all right, Ken Anderson, I'm going to have you come and, you know, make a haunted house for Disneyland. And that's kind of the year of the haunted mansion, at least when it really, you know, when Walt really dug in with Ken to, to get this thing going, um, for Disneyland. But, but so much, you're right. You know, this, so then that happened. And I think that year could have been, I mean, Walt was starting to talk interviews with newspapers and talk about how, yeah, we're going to open a haunted house next year. Um, you know, everyone was kind of convinced that they were going to design it this year and build it in a year or two. It would show up. Um, Sam McKim started putting it in the, the souvenir maps. Mm -hmm. You know, in the 1958, I think 1958 souvenir map had the Haunted Mansion in it. So, um, you're right. Yeah, you know, they, they had these ideas that they're, it's just going to happen, but it, it didn't really happen. And I think maybe Ken Anderson and Walt couldn't quite, you know, if I'm reading between the lines, maybe they didn't quite see eye to eye on what the Haunted Mansion is really supposed to be about when it comes down to it. Um, is it scary or not? That seems to be a question that really haunts the haunted mansion itself you know all through the the design of it um and then then yeah so then a lot of different things are happening with imagineering you know the world's fair starts to become a possibility and um disneyland is changing and growing and you know, 1959 you know there was a lot of other stuff going on at disneyland um over near tomorrowland and fantasyland and you know it was just a really busy place in imagineering and so it kind of took a back seat for a little bit there um so yeah, to answer your question, yeah, there's, it was always kind of this thing that was sort of in the front, but then sort of in the back at yeah, Imagineering. And, you know, it's, it was a while before it really, you know, actually when Walt passed away before it really, they buckled down and said like, this has to be done and then finished it up. How much of the issues of developing the story and interior design of the mansion were due to lack to Walt's lack of direction with the what? team on the project? Yeah, well, that's another one of those things that 
is hard to answer, right? Because different people that worked with Walt Disney took him in different ways, you know, and, and a lot of people, um, could really kind of discern what he wanted by his, it seems to me, at least like Walt, a lot of the times wouldn't really say like, necessarily do this but he'd do a lot of yes this and no to that like yes to this no to that and so but he relied on his designers to design right so um you know that's that's really a good question that i don't really know you know i don't have a great answer for that ken anderson seems to have known what walt was looking for and i i suspect ken also was trying to he had his own idea of what a haunted house should be and you know of course he was designing it so of course he had an idea what it should be but i think you know it might have just been a little too maybe um maybe too scary or a little bit just it didn't quite seem to fit anywhere you know then they tried to kind of turn it into a pirate story um and you know when they decided to build new orleans square and i think while i think probably Walt had a big hand in that trying to see if we could push this haunted house into more of a a pirate ghost story that would tie in with the pirates wax museum and the new new orleans square and that didn't really work out either so um you know i don't know if it wasn't you know, Walt, as far as I can tell, was in, in many ways a big picture kind of director. Like he would kind of lead the, the in a big picture way, say, well, we're going to go here and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But but the details of this haunted mansion seem to not ever really coalesce um, under his direction. And I'm not really sure if that was because I don't think it was because he didn't care about it. I think. It just, I think it just literally didn't coalesce. You know, there were so many different ideas coming at everyone, Walt and, you know, Ken and the pirates idea. And then maybe just a, you know, a scary haunted house idea. And I, I don't know that there might have been too many ideas kind of floating around at various times for someone to just kind of come up with the perfect idea. Yeah. And, and Ken Anderson, a lot of, he was significant designing the haunted mansion he knew today, but it seemed like, uh, some of it really didn't click with Walt. It's almost like Walt knew what he didn't want. But he wasn't sure what he did want, except, you know, he, he didn't want it too scary. He wanted it pristine on the exterior. But the, and, and some of the storylines, like, you know, um, Ken Anderson came up with it, what Captain Gore and Bloodmere Mansion. And maybe you could tell us a little about those. And yeah. some of, some of those story, concepts from the stories did make it into the mansion at the end yeah certainly um yeah and i think you're you're probably right that walt um probably knew more what he didn't want than what he for sure did want um yeah and ken tried a few things you know i think one of the earliest things was well let's tie it in with this new orleans square idea you know and let's have pirates be the be the gist of it so you could go walk through the pirates of the caribbean you know and they were going to have kind of an exhibit of all the villains of piracy and you'd walk through an old ship and see all these exhibits and then you could walk out walk down the street and at the corner there kind of where the treehouse is now you could go on one of the pirates homes and tour a home of the pirate but it would turn out that this would be a haunted house and it would be captain gore right gorleo i think is was his title captain gorlo and he would uh, and you would eventually find out that he was being haunted and then you would find out that he was being haunted by a woman who was his bride either bride to be or recent w- recently married i'm not exactly sure how that went but but he had she had discovered that he was not who he said he was when they got married he was more of a evil pirate rather than a you know uh, a shipping magnet perhaps and so he killed her he ended up killing her um and then she haunted him so that was kind of the story you would that would un uh 
veil itself as you walked through this haunted house and you would walk through it and see all these various scenes, some of which, like you mentioned, um, were similar to things that actually made it into the haunted mansion, um, ghosts and reflections and things like that. Um, it was pretty grim as far as a story. Um, and I, if I had to total take a guess at why these things didn't end up working out, I would probably say, well, it wasn't against scaring people and freaking them out because every, lots of things in Disneyland did that. But I think he just, you, you know, something in there wasn't a story for everyone. It was a little too grim. I, I would maybe guess that had something to do with it. But so the Captain Gore story, you know, there were various iterations of it. But basically, you know, this pirate that killed his bride and then she came back to haunt him. So he kills himself at the end, um, hangs himself. And then you leave um, after that horrible situation. <laughs> and, um you know, like you said, things mirrored into the actual Haunted Mansion. We have at the beginning of the Haunted Mansion, we find out that kind of the owner of the home killed himself. Um, so they still kept that idea, but they twisted it to make it more of a setting instead of a like horrible situation. Um, and, then, you know, and like you said, Bloodmere Mansion, they did try to kind of take some of these ideas and instead of a pirate, just make it more of a haunted house that they found somewhere out in New Orleans and dragged into Disneyland and um, you know, some of that story was, well, here's this haunted house. We found it and we're, we're leaving it here. We keep trying to fix it up, but nothing works out. You know, the next morning, everything is dilapidated again and we're, we're missing some construction workers. We don't know what happened to them. And, you know, we hear these weird sounds. So, you know, and, and part, one of Ken's ideas was to have Walt do all this explaining, you know, on a recording. So, you know, here it is. Maybe you want to visit it. We, you know, at your own risk and then you could you know tour through this haunted house and a lot of the ideas were the similar things to the the captain gore story i think ken tried to lighten it up a little bit and make it more of a party or a wedding party with lots of ghosts and lots of spooks and things so you can kind of feel there there's no real evidence to what what walt said but you can feel the idea kind of lightning from the original captain gore story so you can imagine yeah maybe walt was saying like you know i like a lot of these ideas but something isn't you know isn't really balancing here with the how intense this might be um and so yeah there's a number of blood mirror ideas and and a lot of those ideas that ken had are getting closer to things we have in the haunted mansion changing portraits um you know more more ghosts you know a big ballroom wedding party and you know ghosts and mirrors and things and so he was still coming up with a lot of these things that we found to have actually occur in the haunted mansion as we have it today yeah I mean, he even wanted in bloodmere mansion he wanted the um the headless horseman yeah sort of going to be the finale <laughs> yeah ken i mean he understood synergy like you could tell a lot of his <laughs> ideas were um you know synergy has always been part of disneyland people kind of complain about that every five or 10 years or so, but it, it's, you know, been a part of Disneyland since day one. And, <laughs> and Ken, you know, he knew that. So I think he tried to get the lonesome ghosts in there, which actually might've been a pretty clever way to, to tie something in for sure. Um, yeah, he had his, in fact, the big set piece was going to be, you would come into the parlor and you'd see, you'd look out the window and you'd see, you know, off in the distance, the headless horseman ride by. And then, you know, things would happen. Ghosts would fly out of the graveyard and, wind and thunder would crash and the headless horseman would come up right in front of you out the window and scare everyone. So he had, you know, a pretty, and, and I believe he built that scene. There were a number of these scenes that Ken Anderson actually built and let people walk through on the studio lot so they could kind of see what he had in mind. And I think that was one of the ones, because there's, there's plans for it that are very specific down to the lighting and, and everything. So I, I do believe he probably 
recreated that for Pete. Some, someone has seen it. <laughs> someone has been able to see it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Headless Horseman. That would have been pretty cool. Uh, you know, it's one of those Disney properties that's also very iconic. You know, I think he, maybe, you know, I don't know. It might have been newer then, but, um, you know, yeah. That would have been cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Ken got reassigned to Sleeping Beauty. And then maybe this was a turning point for the project. Yale Gracie and Roly Crump were assigned to the project. And they worked on creating special effects, many of which are in the mansion today. Yeah, so that's really interesting, right? Because they really picked up the reins pretty much right from where Ken Anderson dropped them. So their early kind of special effects and things they were designing were based really a lot on Ken Anderson's designs. So at this point, we weren't really trying to change his ideas yet or, you know, his plan for the haunted house. I think it was more a case of, you know, while trying to find people that could, you know, if this is our story, then let's make it into a really amazing show. Ken Anderson had done all the dark rides in Fantasyland, you know, so he was well versed in, you know, how to make pop-up spooks and things, you know, Snow White Scary Adventures and things kind of that would spook you. But I think Walt was looking for, you know, the next the next step. And you can kind of see when you look back at what the Haunted Mansion became, um, I think Walt was trying to go that that way. Like, you know, I don't really want another, you know, a giant Snow White Scary Adventure. Because even in this this um, Headless Horseman display we were talking about, the way Ken Anderson set it up and described it, it really was kind of a pop-up spook effect, something you might come across in a dark ride. And I think Walt was looking for things that you can't really explain away, like a magic show, you know? And so so that's, um, I think, what he was looking for with Yale Gracie, because Yale Gracie was Walt's kind of tinker guy. He could kind of put together special effects and live effects and things. And so I think Walt decided, and Rolly was just, was just a kid out of the animation, but Walt knew he could tinker around. Also, he was making these little very delicate sculptures. And I think Walt thought, well, let's put these two together and, you know, see what they can do. I've talked to Rolly. Actually, part of a big part of my book was spending a day with Rolly, just talking about the haunted mansion and which was a great day, by the way. And I'll um, bet, (laughs) you know, and he, um, I think he, you know, he, basically remembers working with Rolly as just his apprentice. You know, he was just, you know, when he started on the Haunted Mansion working with Rolly, he said, you know, I did a lot of building boxes and stuff. He was just kind of learning about Imagineering from, from Yale. I'm talking about, yeah, I'm talking about Rolly talking about working with Yale. And he <laughs> said, um, you know, Yale would design these things and, and he would kind of help him learn, you know, how to, how to put these things together in a way that uh, live audiences and, can see them repeat. And so he learned a lot from Yale. Um, but Rolly at that point was, was more or less just still learning about Imagineering and, um, you know, how to work. And, and he was, and he spent a lot of time talking to me about how he was also just spending a lot of that time just being quiet and going to meetings and watching Walt Disney. Like he, he told me a number of times, like, yeah, I really was most interested in just kind of quietly sitting in the meetings and watching Walt react to the other Imagineers. Um, and then you can see later on in Rolly's career how that played out, um, for, for better and for worse for Rolly. But, um, 
Yeah. So that was a point. Yeah. So definitely that's like 1959 era when Yale, Gracie and Rolly spent another year just watching monster. You know, Rolly was, he's like, it was a great year. We watched monster movies. You know, we would meet, we would just say like, what are we going to do today? Let's make a statue talk or, you know, let's just <laughs> come up with some amazing things. And they built a lot of spook houses also in the studio for people to come check out their special effects, similar to what um, Ken did. So, um, you know, I think that was kind of an ongoing, um, you know, every couple of years there would be like, Hey, come check out the latest haunted house stuff. And whoever was working on it would set things up and people could kind of travel through and give their opinions and feedback. Um, and definitely that was the case with Yale and, um, Rolly because they, def- they, they tell a story and I don't know. You've probably heard this. Lots of people have heard this, but how they, they once left things kind of set up one night inside the studio and the janitors came in and they had triggered some kind of exploding ghost head, you know, something that just like <laughs> went off and all these different effects went off. And it, it, he tells the story about how they came back the next day and like, I think there was a, a broom sitting there in the middle of the room. Nothing, everything was running. Nothing had been cleaned. And the janitors told them we're never coming back here to clean up ever again. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've heard Rolly tell that story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But yeah, a lot of things like the singing busks, uh, busts, uh, the inverted faces, Leota effect, that all came from um, Yale and Rolly working together. Yeah, oh, for sure. Cool. And, you know, Yale... Some of it was accidents. Some of it was Yale had, you know, he's kind of famous for having this um, kid's book of science experiments that has a couple uh, Pepper's Ghost in it. Although Ken Anderson was already using the Pepper's Ghost at Disneyland. It wasn't really brand new to the Haunted Mansion, um, but they they definitely took it to the next level. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, a lot of those things, I think Yale just kind of went for it. Um you know, he would look for little tricks and things you could do and tinker in a little way and try to figure out how can we expand this and make it, you know, 10 times as big and 10 times as amazing. And then Rolly was just kind of along for the ride learning from Yale and trying to figure out, you know, his own ways of telling stories. Yeah. Now, it was interesting, though, is Rolly, uh, he sort of went in his own direction because he was frustrated that the other Imagineers and designers, they were using too many cliches and it was just becoming a Halloween style mansion. So he did his own unique take on it and he was inspired by films like Jean Cocteau's uh, 19, uh, you know, the film Beauty and the Beast and Federico Fellini's Juliet of the Spirits. And so he created a lot of these, a lot of sculptures and things that really had a big impact on Walt. Yeah, and he's lucky that they filmed that 1965 special <laughs> because because <laughs> yes. his little things got in there, right? Um, you know, it's it's really kind of funny. He he was he talks it about the Museum of the Weird a lot, and so so in between there though, before between working with Yale and the Museum of the Weird, Imagineering all got sidetracked while put everyone most of the people on to working on the world's fair right so Mm -hmm. so a lot of r&d was happening for the world's fair the um audio animatronics the technology grew by leaps and bounds when they created mr lincoln right and then um bob gurr was there trying to figure out how to make endless trains of carriages work um disneyland really didn't have an Omnimover system before um, the World's Fair came along and Bob Gurr was watching some of the different pavilions that had trains of cars that would just cycle in a circle. And so he was trying to figure out what can we do to make this even better? And, you know, and so Bob Gurr found a way to 
to make a carriage that would go on a train, but at the same time, they each one of them could individually spin and turn and rotate so they could um, point you in certain directions. So they would all follow a certain path, but they would point you back and forth and left and right in specific directions. So you would have to look at what was going on. You couldn't just kind of scan the horizon. So all these, all this R&D was happening at the World's Fair. And so then, you know, they came back and Bob Gurr, meanwhile, invents the Omnimover for Adventure Through Inner Space. And Rolly Crump is um, working on this, um, like you said, he came back and he said there was a period of time after the World's Fair that people weren't 100% sure, you know, where we're going right now as far as Imagineering. And he was looking at the haunted house and he said, you know, this is Halloween time and it's witches and spiders and yeah, he just, it wasn't his aesthetic. You know, he thought this should just be a, a weird thing. It shouldn't be black cats and ghosts and sheets. It should be, you know, just stuff that no one has ever seen before. So that's why he came up with this, you know, surreal museum of the weird stuff. And, you know, I was talking about how he was young. He was quite young. He and Bob Gurr were youngsters when Disneyland was being built. And the rest of Imagineers were more Walt Spears. You know, they'd been there, some of them, since Snow White. So they were older people. And this, you know, this started to make a, this little rift between Rolly and the other Imagineers. Um, he's, a, he's a bold guy. <laughs> and he was a strong, you know, weightlifting guy and probably an attractive guy. And he had, he was a little bit of an iconoclast. And he, you know, had kind of instead of a normal office he had silks up on the walls and he would play you know what what um uh, alice davis later told me was like hippie music he was always playing hippie music <laughs> <laughs> so you know there was there was a little bit of a you know he could rub people the wrong way especially being such a young guy and especially having walt disney's respect i think that was one of the things that helped him and hurt him at the same time as such a young guy. So, so for the museum, of the weird museum of the weird, definitely he had Walt Disney's attention. You know, Walt, there's another famous story where that Rolly tells, which is that there was, um, you know, one of the meetings for what's happening with the haunted mansion. And, um, this must have been in 64, I'm guessing 63, 64. And everyone presented their things and Rolly was off to the side. And, you know, the other Imagineers were kind of poo pooing him. And Walt walked over and said, I want to see what Rolly has to say. So Rolly said, well, you know, I have these ideas and, you know, showed him all those things that you see in the 19, the, the 1965 Disneyland special that's show, that shows Rolly showing off his little, maquettes for the museum of the weird and he showed him all the walt and walt was like okay and then the story that the way Rolly tells it is that um he came to work the next day and walt was still sitting there you know thinking about the museum of the weird stuff in, in a sense telling Rolly that i couldn't even go home i was just so kind of captivated with the haunted mansion and trying to think what are we going to do you know where are we going to take this and you know i feel like i don't know exactly what to do with your museum of the weird stuff but i want it in there let's make a separate you know, maybe a separate attraction that attaches to Haunted Mansion or, you know, so that's where the Museum of the Weird started and stopped. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sadly, Walt Disney passed away short, you know, not too long after that before any of these things could really, um, you know, become reality. And so, and really that, that was the end. If it wasn't for that little bit of seeing all his weird little sculptures in the TV show, we might not have even really known that there was, you know, this museum of the weird going to happen. Um, Imagineers love the history of this though. You know, they, they made the comic book about it and they talk about it a lot. And um, it's kind of mythical, mythical now, you know, but it was, yeah, it really happened. And, and really had these ideas and Walt liked them. And if Walt had lived longer, maybe the haunted mansion would have taken a, a quite a different turn. Yeah. Well, we did get the grandfather's clock out of it. 
Yeah. And, and, the, hand, and at the, the seance and the hand, room to a certain room, extent. At yeah. the exit crypt, there's the arms holding the sconces. That's mm-hmm. pretty much a direct idea that Roy Crump had. So, you know, and he, a lot of his things, you know, Mark Davis also worked on some seances and it, it was, it's kind of hard to piece out who did what in the hot match. And, you know, fans want to know so much, like who did what. And a lot of the things are ideas piled on top of ideas, piled, piled on top of ideas. Right. So it's difficult to really sometimes piece out who's responsible for everything. One of the main things is the, the wallpaper with the eyes in it. You know, lots of people are taking credit for that these days. And it's really hard to say, you know, where that actually came from probably quite a few of people had input and ideas and like, let's have some wallpaper that has faces in it. But for my money, like that illustration is Roller Crump's style of, of drawing. And when you see his Ernie Ball logos and things from around the same time period, like it, it looks like that face on the wallpaper. So I'm kind of, I'm still kind of sticking with, even though it goes against some of the newer things we've heard lately, I, I really, yeah, I know Roley. what you mean. <laughs> I yeah. think Rolly kind of had most of what mostly to do with that wallpaper in the Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you said, the, the Haunted Mansion had been on the souvenir map since 1958. And I, I guess Walt finally felt he had to do something. So away went the Swift's plantation chicken house in 1961 and up went the facade of the Haunted Mansion with an yeah. s- announcement. In two years, we're opening it. Well, 1963 came and went <laughs> because <laughs> the Imagineers, like you said, were focused on the New York World's Fair. And then um, in 65, of course, the Haunted Mansion was delayed because they were bringing those attractions from the fair to Disneyland. And then they were developing new Tomorrowland that would open in 67. And then, as you said, Jeff, the passing of Walt Disney really had a tremendous effect, of course, on everybody, but and on the project of the Haunted Mansion as well. Yeah, you know, I've talked to, wow, lots of people that, you know, did this little thing for the Haunted Mansion, like I, I stained the wood in the elevator, or I worked on some of the brickwork, or, you know, you know, people that have just were working at Disneyland, perhaps not as Imagineers, but perhaps for the staff shop or, you know, behind the scenes. And everyone, everyone remembers the day Walt Disney died. Um, and most people just kind of say they didn't, they literally didn't know what to do. They, some people said we just kind of got in our car and drove around a little bit listening to the news. Some people, just broke down and crying. Some people just kind of got a little bit numb, but really no one knew what to do. And yeah, the Haunted Mansion was not finished. And by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, there were a lot of questions that were unanswered. There was a building sitting there. It had elevators in it. They knew, you know, that it was going to excavate out and be somewhere behind the berm of New Orleans Square. But there really were very few answers as to what's actually going to be in this attraction when Walt Disney passed away. So yeah. yeah. And, you know, and Walt, before he passed away, pirates was mostly finished. So he had at least gotten to walk, you know, through the actual pirates attraction and, and see what it would be like in there. And, um, Claude Coates and Mark Davis worked very closely together to create pirates of the Caribbean, um, and to create it in a, in a very effective way. And while Disney put them together, they're very different artists and they work in a very different way. Uh, but Walt, um, had put them together and I, and I presume had also had a lot of, um, meetings with them in which he could approve or disapprove different 
directions and concepts. So they worked really well to create an amazing themed attraction for the Pirates of the Caribbean. So I think Walt figured they could do a similar thing for the Haunted Mansion. And when he passed away, before these questions were answered, there became a little bit of a, a, I mean, a conflict um, between the two. People kind of put that into a little bit of a simpler kind of a, a lot of people like to say Claude Coates wanted it scary. Mark Davis wanted it funny. I mean, Sort of. I think Mark Davis wanted it more what Walt Disney had always relied on him for, which is to create characters that were really engaging. And I think Claude Coates wanted it to be more what Walt Disney relied on him for, which was to create these amazing kind Mm of um, atmospheres and and places and spaces for people to be in and feel things, right? So so you think about the end of Pirates with the big flaming fortress, you know, that's a a Claude Coates kind of masterpiece, right? And so... um, I think, you know, he was kind of always looking at the Haunted Mansion in terms of how can we make it this kind of dark, spooky place. And, and and Mark was always thinking, well, what brought me to Disneyland specifically to make, to amuse people and to, you know, um, be able to reach all of his guests, no matter what their ethnicity or what their age, you know, to make sight gags that everyone could read no matter what. And so I think the two ideas there never really... And even I think that both of them would probably say they even at the finished Haunted Mansion, they never really merged those ideas together to either one of their probably um, full, you know, I don't think either one of them fully agreed with how things came together. But um, I think in the end, everyone was proud of what what happened with the Haunted Mansion. Um, but that was part of the problem with Walt passing away. Those two hadn't really figured out how to mix these ideas. And so they really had to hash that out. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that Walt did is he would put people together that were very different creatively, as you said, but he could resolve that. Yeah. And without him there, there was no one to resolve their um, their their creative visions. And I think that did result in some tension. But it was funny because in everything I've read, this was the first attraction where people didn't seem totally happy at the end with yeah. what was created. They they felt okay, but they didn't feel like they, they were totally satisfied. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's, you know, and it's, it's kind of hard to say. No one really came out and, you know, at the time in 1969, Imagineers were still not really named a lot in terms of, you know, the media and how they felt about Disney thing. Sometimes they'd be on shows, but it would just be a, you know, a, a technician or an imagineer. They wouldn't do a lot of, you know, the way today we, we name everyone and everyone has their perspective attached to their personality. You know, it was a little bit different back then. So it's a little hard to say. Mark Davis, you know, and I think some of the problems were, were, were the ideas clashing? Some of it was, was probably just these were people that had done, had a lot of responsibility. Mark Davis had led projects. Claude Coates had led projects. You know, they were trying to lead this together. And, uh, you know, Mark has said a number of times he just thought there were too many cooks in the kitchen, which is, you know, mm-hmm. he had the, the bona fides to be able to say, you know, I should have been in charge of this. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm sure Co- Claude Coates felt the same. He was in charge of the Pirates project. And so he probably felt like he, you know, should have been in charge. So some of it might be that. Um, I think, you know, but, but the, but the Haunted Mansion was a runaway success from the minute it opened. I mean, it, 
from the public's point of view, people just came and came and came and came and came. So I think it didn't take long for everyone to come around and say, you know what? We did something pretty cool here. You know, people Mm -hmm. love it and it's, it's amazing. You know, however you slice it, it's, it's amazing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I think people, I think, you know, in the long run, I think everyone pretty much came around to saying, you know what? There's a lot to really admire and how we eventually finally put this thing together and they could tell by the public's response. Yeah. And and then we can't forget ex Atencio because he had to take Mark Davis's, you know, humorous characters and vignettes, Claude Coates's sort of ominous atmosphere that he had created, then Rolly Crump and Yale Gracie's illusion and special effects and put them all together into a story that made sense. Yeah. In some <laughs> way. That was a big task. It was a huge task. And, you know, X is, it's, I wish, you know, I've been able, like I said, I talked to Rolly for quite a while for my book. I've spent an afternoon talking to Alice Davis all about the Haunted Mansion and what she remembered about Mark. Like, I, I have a good feeling for how those people thought. And Claude Coates' son, I've spoken to a number of times. I, I don't have a great feel for X's story. And I kind of wish I did because you're, like you just said, he had this monumental task and, he, you know, by the time he became kind of a fan favorite at the end of his career um, and nearing the end of his life, you know, he was feeling like, um, yeah, you know, I just kind of said, what would a ghost say? You know, he was giving those kind of answers because they were people pleasers. But he really came up with like the pirate script is this incredible pop culture shaping kind of you know, thing like he drew on all these different pirate movies and books and things and created kind of his own version of what pirates would sound like and say. And we kind of just think that's what pirates talk like now. And, you know, the haunted mansion was a similar idea. He had all these crazy ideas and rooms and special effects and things that were kind of coming together into a story. And he was trying to figure out how do I, you know, what do I do to describe this? And so, and he had the same, X had the same problem that a lot of the Imagineers had. He tried to put too much together at first. So he was trying to explain like, how, how are we going to have people go room to room and, and tie it together? So he kept trying to have some kind of a, a narrator or a, a character that would follow you through. So there was at some point he thought maybe there would be a, a black cat that you would keep seeing. And in your head, you'd be hearing this voice through the, the doom buggy, but it turned out that it was the thoughts of the cat. And sometimes he thought maybe it would be a Raven that actually was saying things, you know, as you go through the attraction. And finally, I think pretty late in the game, he, he finally figured out, and I don't know if it was only he or, if, you know, meetings finally came to this conclusion, but they finally figured out, you know, we're trying too hard. We can just have a host that just kind of announces what's going on in every room and people will understand. And, and that really did work out really well. So you're right. He had a, a really difficult task. And, um, you know, there's various versions of the Haunted Mansion script that are out there that are a little bit different, but he always was pretty much on the same, you know, aiming for the same target and very, they're all very similar. And I think he, mm-hmm. um, I think he nailed it. You know, it's pretty, oh, yeah. um, it's really, it's it's funny, but it also has, you know, it's a little sardonic. It has a little a little bit of like a lot of the things he says are actually when you think about it, you're like, well, that's really kind of creepy. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I really think he did a great job of setting the mood that we kind of take for granted now that, yeah, you can easily have this thing that's spooky, but it's also silly, but it's also a little creepy, you know, and it also, you know, it has all these things that work together as one mood. And um, it's not as easy as it sounds. No. Well, and it seemed like he he was really 
pretty faithful to Walt Disney's original concept for the mansion. You know, it was a retirement home for these displaced spirits and, and that they could just, you know, perform and haunt any, you know, sort of innocent guests that happens to wander by. Yeah. And especially, you know, you, you, that comes out at you at the end when you're in the cemetery and you see all these ghosts from different generations and periods of history. You know, there's an, there's a, even an Egyptian sarcophagus and then there's a, a mummy, you know, or, and a guy from old Victorian days. There's the, I think the Civil War era band or Revolutionary War baby band, you know, even my Revolutionary War. And there, you know, there's all these different parts of history that are kind of represented by the ghosts in the Haunted Mansion. So you kind of get that feeling that, oh, this isn't just a family. This is like a history of people that are joining together here. So whether it's the family for hundreds of years or whether it's a collection of different, uh, you know, I mean, who could have traced their history back to a mummy from Egypt, right? So it's obviously <laughs> different ghosts from different eras that have come together and gathered. Um, so I think you're right. I think they actually did go back to what Walt said, which is, you know, in the end, we're just going to be a place where ghosts can come and hang out. Yeah. Now, the Haunted Mansion is home to 999 Happy Haunts. For a lot of our listeners, there's one that has fascinated them for decades. That's the Hatbox Ghost. And he disappeared shortly after the Haunted Mansion opened. Although I think the official story is he just sort of wandered into another room or something. <laughs> and then he reappeared just a few years ago. So what is the history behind this character? Yeah. Um, well, that's a good a good question. And I, I think that is a Mark Davis creation. I don't think it's from anyone else. I think he worked a lot on the whole attic scene and different ghostly brides and other just kind of ghostly young women. And uh, I think he wasn't exactly sure what kind of society to represent up there in the attic. So he's tried a lot of things. And finally, it kind of came down to the bride ghost and then this other ghost who was there with her. And he carried a hat box. So like whether or not he was selling hats or, you know, it's kind of somehow he was, I believe, supposed to be connected to the bride uh, because they also looked similar in terms of the way their skeletal kind of features and the clothing they wore. So, you know, I'm not a hundred percent positive, but I think he was supposed to be kind of connected to the bride. So Mark Davis came up with this ghost character. He came up with the kind of idea that you would see his head, on his shoulders, but then you would see it in the hat box and it would go back and forth. And, um, I don't know if Yale Gracie had much to do with that or not. I think it was mostly kind of Mark coming up with a character idea. Like, here's the gag. Like you see his head, but suddenly it's gone. Oh, it's in that box he's holding. Like, sounds like a great gag. It's a very Mark Davis-y thing to do, right? And, and Mark would just draw these things and hand them off to Imagineering and say, well, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> Come up with how it works, right? So, um, you know, they built it. They put it in there. I, there's a photo of it on Doom Buggies that some a member of the public took. So I know it existed in the Haunted Mansion. Mm -hmm. There was a while there when people weren't even sure that you could actually see it as a member of the public that might it maybe never was there. But it was there, you know, for who knows how long, perhaps a week or so. Most people feel like they just really never figured out how to make his head totally disappear and reappear. They tried some kind of lighting effect and it just... You could still kind of see it. And, and if you look at the flash picture on Doom Buggies, you can see both heads, right? So you can tell that if there was any kind of light leaking or, or anything like that, you would be able to see both of these heads. So I think, um, it just didn't really work, right? So, and people, there's different 
people think different people made the call. Probably Mark Davis made the call himself just to yank it out of there. So it really was only there, I would guess, for a couple weeks at the most, maybe even a couple days. It's hard to say, but not for long. Um, until, like you said, recently, um, when, uh, kind of a Yale Gracie protege at, well, at Imagineering Today, Daniel Joseph came up with uh, some magic of his own, like, and he figured out how we could, we could do this in a way that really does what Mark Davis wanted it to do, um, using kind of digital technology. Um, and so, yeah, they rebuilt the hot, the, the uh, Hatbox Ghost and stuck him in there, and there he is. Yeah, it's great. He's yeah. so uh, haunting us in the attic or outside the attic. I can't quite figure out where exactly. Yeah, he is. he's kind of at the gate there, right? So <laughs> yeah. it's a little bit. I would say he's outside on the yeah. like some kind of a little patio or something. So yeah, yeah, it looks like it. And then in October 2001, Jack Skellington and his friends from Halloween Town began taking over Disneyland's Haunted Mansion each year, beginning in the fall and throughout the Christmas holiday season. And that's like a whole episode in itself. <laughs> okay, now Craig and I believe that film is a Christmas film, and I think that the overlay shouldn't start till after Halloween. Of course, I know it doesn't make financial sense for Disneyland, but what are your thoughts? <laughs> are you that this is a Christmas film or a Halloween film? Yeah, I agree with you. I, it's a it's a holiday film. I mean, it's it's stop motion. We all know that's supposed to be Christmas. Come on, you know. And it's I, I the reason as far as the haunted mansion is confer- concerned, it's just a little weird to have Christmassy stuff at Halloween. Like if there's ever mm-hmm. a holiday that the haunted mansion should be it's ghostly most, it's Halloween or Halloween time, right? And they just they can't do that now because it's already snowy inside and I just I love the haunted mansion holiday. I think it's a great addition to the park. It's I love that they did something so different with an attraction that they can undo. Um, you know, I what that they could change every single attraction for three months of the year and then change it back. It's like a whole new Disneyland and then you're back again. Right. So I'm all for that idea if it's done well, which I think the Honda Mansion holiday is done well. But, um, yeah, I, I kind of am with you in the fact that I just wish for Halloween they could go the other direction instead of making it lighter and more holiday. I wish they could make it a little darker and a little creepier. Maybe put live actors in there or something, you know, to make. It's like a Halloween experience. That would be amazing. But yeah, like you said, it doesn't look like that's where we're headed anytime soon. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, have you traveled to the international parks and experienced Tokyo Disneyland's Haunted Mansion and Disneyland Paris's Phantom Manor? No, I have not. So I've, yeah. uh, I've only spoken to, you know, hundreds of people that have gone <laughs> to these things, but no, and I you know, and I really want to, especially now that the Phantom Manor has been redone and all the effects have been renovated and I've watched videos and it just looks incredible. It and is amazing. The things they've changed in the Phantom Manor. I, I'm dying to go see that, but no, yeah. unfortunately I haven't yet been able to travel to any of the international parks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been to all the parks now. And so I have seen those and they are amazing. And I got to see the, um, the um, Nightmare Before Christmas overlay at Tokyo Disneyland's Ooh. Haunted Mansion. Yeah. Wow. So that I could see, okay, this is how it would look in Florida, even though theirs is a little different slightly. Mm-hmm. Um, it would it would be very cool in Florida because they've expanded, of course, what they could put in there. So because the mansion is 
you know, lo- a little larger, has, a, has more rooms in it. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's very cool. Do you consider Hong Kong Disneyland's Mystic Manor a version of the Haunted Mansion? I do not. And I, um, have to disagree with my friend Jason Sorrell, who wrote the, the Haunted Mansion book that mm-hmm. Disney publishes. The, the most recent iteration has jettisoned the Haunted Mansion film, which is fine, but they added, <laughs> they added, <laughs> you know, all the, all of the different attractions, including Mystic Manor, um, that they consider to be haunted mansion related. And I just, I don't, I don't see it. Mystic Manor is not, it's supernatural. So that's okay. Um, and it's kind of a, it's not really an Omnimover, but I, I get it. It's a track or it's a ride that takes you through a, a tour of a haunted or a supernatural building. I just, you know, the storyline is different and, and not, not, not just different. It's just not even the same idea. So I just don't, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, there are a couple, um, tributes to the haunted mansion in there, I think, which is fine, changing portraits and things and, um, some singing armor, I think. So, but I just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I don't really, I don't see it. So no, I don't. Yeah, I don't, agree. Yeah. I don't think there's enough of a link. Yeah, to the haunted mansion to make it a, another version. Yeah, in the family of mansions there. So agreed. Yeah. Now with all the technological advances Imagineering has achieved over the decades, and that they've implemented into newer attractions, why do you think the haunted mansion has remained popular since 1969? That is a great question. And it's really not that hard to answer. I mean, the Haunted Mansion, it takes, it's more of a reflection of the history of this kind of a spook show attraction. So it, it really doesn't just go to the fifties. It goes to the 1800s. I think they were doing magic lantern projection shows in the 1700s, I think. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, the history of the special effects in the Haunted Mansion are, is hundreds of years and it's not concerned. So, so you know that Yale Gracie and Rolly Crump and Mark Davis and Claude Coates, they were not concerned with the latest and greatest, um, other than perhaps the audio animatronics. I mean, and even the audio animatronics in the Haunted Mansion, there isn't, you know, you know, a super audio animatronic like the, pirate in pirates of the caribbean they're all like the auctioneer pirate they're they're all pretty basic back and forth audio animatronics so um you know you, they just weren't concerned with that so uh, the storytelling and the special effects don't really rely on they never relied on technology right so now there's you can make some exceptions you can say well the hot the hat box ghost wouldn't have worked if it wasn't for modern technology and i I, I agree with that. You know, Daniel Joseph was very careful to put mechanics into this effect too, so that it still felt like, you know, an audio animatronic from the sixties. It just had a little help with, you know, some digital projection type of work to animation to kind of put the special effect over the edge. But, um, you know, and then the times when they do try to bring technology into the haunted mansion in a misguided way, which I might think for the bride that they changed in the attic, I might, have questions about some of the decisions there, you know, then you have people saying like, Oh, I love it. Oh, I hate it. Oh, it doesn't work. Oh, it kind of is okay. You know, Oh, what are they trying to say? So, um, there have been those kind of interesting moments in the history of the Mansion where people aren't really sure, but overall, like overall, I would say the story and the idea and the history of even having haunted house attractions, um, doesn't usually rely on 
like technology. It's more, it relies more on atmosphere and convincing people of a, of a story and putting people on the edge of their, you know, putting their nerves on edge and things like that, which, which you can, you know, you can do that with, and almost any, I mean, people have been doing things like that in storytelling for hundreds, thousands of years. So it doesn't really need the technology. That's probably the best answer I could give you about, mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. And, and I, I think it does just capture our imagination when mm-hmm. you go through there. So, um, in, in a way that's very unique from other attractions. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it, well, it's a haunted house, right? So <laughs> it has, you, you go, people bring into a haunted house. So I think people bring in different things. You know, when you go to see Peter Pan's flight, everyone has seen the same Peter Pan film. So we kind of have an expectation of what we're probably going to see and some of the ideas that we're going to be exposed to. The haunted mansion, you know, before you go in it, there's no film that it's based on. There's no specific idea that it's trying to you know, push to you other than here's a bunch of spooky things. So people bring a lot of their expectations and fears into the haunted mansion. So everyone takes something different out of the haunted mansion. So it's very flexible in, in mm-hmm. a sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, merchandise has accompanied the haunted mansion since it opened. I remember Carnation's ice cream Sunday when I was a boy. <laughs> that, that was the era when they had ice cream Sundays for a number of the attractions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I know you're a collector. So what what are the most sought after Haunted Mansion collectibles today? Wow. You know, um, those early things are for sure sought after. So that, that there's a poster for that ice cream sundae. I used to have one until I sold it at auction. Um, you know, the, I don't know that there's more than a handful of those things out in the world. So things like that, you know, early paper things and marketing things are always collectible. And the early press photos, people are, I think one of those press photos of the Hatbox ghost recently sold on eBay for maybe $500 or something like that. Like, so people want the stuff that really represents the opening of the haunted mansion. That's popular. Um, you know, and there weren't, there was always marketing, but it was a little, you know, little bits here and there. So the tombstones that came out when the Haunted Mansion first opened, there were bajillions of them made. So they're not that expensive, but people really want to have one in their collection. There was, you know, a magic book that came out about the Haunted Mansion. Uh, Nowadays, Disney has kind of spread the Haunted Mansion into a lifestyle um, marketing thing that they do. So they make clothing and purses and house goods and, um, kitchenware and, um, then, and then the collectibles still. So it's kind of hard to like keep a eye on the target, you know, with Haunted Mansion collectibles. It, it, these days, just when something cool comes out, it sometimes hits everyone by surprise. Like last year, Club 33 made these mugs for the Haunted Mansion and they were, replicas of the library statues in the haunted mansion and everyone wanted one and it became the hottest thing for a week and you know and it was just kind of where did that come from you know so it's kind of hard to say what's going to become popular and then you know the haunted mansion there's probably a thousand different haunted mansion pins that disney's put out over the years and some of them are very rare and very collectible i i have tons of pins even though i don't us don't really collect them i just kind of have them so um but they're, they're popular too. You know, every genre that Disney has, it will apply the Haunted Mansion to. So whether it's pin collecting or prints and posters or collectible, um, statuettes and things, you know, they'll always make a version that involves the Haunted Mansion. So, um, 
Uh, yeah, you know, I would say the early stuff is everyone wants something from the early days of the Haunted Mansion, something from the 60s or 70s. You know, everyone wants something. So yeah. those things are always going to be really collectible. Okay, now, which came first, DoomBuggies.com or Nostalgia? <laughs> DoomBuggies.com, for sure. Yeah, I okay. uh, started DoomBuggies in 1997, right? Oh, so, wow. Yeah, it's okay. been around forever. The Haunted Mansion movie came out in 2003, which is already, what, 17 years ago. And that felt like... Uh, that was probably the peak Doom Buggies traffic. You know, there wasn't social media to take everyone's, to gather everyone together. Message boards were the thing, right? So Doom Buggies had its own message board. The Haunted Mansion movie was coming out. Disney was kind enough not to try to claim hauntedmansion.com because Doom Buggies had been using it for years. And so, you know, people just were typing in hauntedmansion.com. Oh, what's this cool website? Oh, they know all about the Haunted Mansion movie. You know, and we did some cross promotion with Disney about the Haunted Mansion movie and had thousands of people on the message boards. And it was, you know, that was kind of the the prime days of Doom Buggies as a community. Um, and, you know, that really started something. I, in my humble, never to be humble opinion, but I've heard a lot <laughs> of people kind of say, you know, the Haunted Mansion has a special fan base. And it's partly because, you know, we had a couple webmasters that were really, you know, myself and a few other guys that had Haunted Mansion communities and websites. And we were kind of gathering together and um in a way that there just other attractions didn't have a, a base of fans to do right so the, yeah that was the early days nostalgia didn't come along till i don't maybe the early 2000s i i i thought i thought up that name myself you know i was trying to think of i wanted to start a blog actually a disney history blog um and i came up with nostalgia and i thought it was clever and i um i registered it and then um I think a couple of years later, I think it was after we had started the podcast already, I was doing a Google search and I found somewhere, I think back in the 1980s, a New York Times headline used the word nostalgia for some someone's Mickey Mouse collection they were talking about. So I wasn't the first to use that word, unfortunately, but I believed I was when I thought it up. And um, yeah, we started that in the early 2000s and, you know, it was going to be a Disney history thing. It is, I guess, but it turned into a podcast mm-hmm. and... Yeah, that's where we are. Yeah, well, you guys talk about, as you say, everything Disney. There's pop culture, there's Disney history. You talk about the theme parks, uh, recipes, <laughs> all kinds of things. You have special events. Yeah. So, so after after folks listen to Connecting with Walt, definitely head over to Nostalgia. Oh well, thank you for for very a lot of, of fun. Yeah, and that's very you kind have, of you. You have a great collection of hosts. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, Dave and Becky and Kristen, my co-hosts, we just, you know, we tried to figure out, we need someone that knows a lot about the resorts. Dave and Becky travel a lot, and Becky loves resort life, so she kind of would do that. Dave was a, a broadcast guy in, in college, so he had all the equipment, and he, uh, you know, so he would kind of be the host, the, and, you know, I was the history guy, and then my dear friend Kristen just loved going to Disneyland. She just is a Disney girl, so she kind of brings the joy, and uh, yeah, that's what we got. Okay, so now where can our listeners find nostalgia? Where are all the places? Let's they see. Can- what do we What do we say these days? The same places they can find your wonderful podcast. What do people say? I think wherever you get your podcasts, right? We're we're pretty much pretty much <laughs> okay. everywhere. Um, but you can also go to nostalgia dot com if you're not sure about podcasts or not really interested in subscribing to podcasts. We have a player right on nostalgia dot com that you can okay. listen every every week too. Great. And when do you um uh, release new episodes? 
every Monday morning. So we haven't Excellent. missed one in 12 years. So wow, very wood. good. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. We're, uh, <laughs> we're doing our best. And now it's, now it's kind of a game. Like who's going to be the person that says, uh, oh, we can't do it this week. Like we've been going for more than 12 years now. So we're kind of like, well, I'm not going to be the one that calls in sick. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. But yeah, so far so good. That's great. Well, we'll have links to doombuggies.com and nostalgia in our show notes. And where can folks pick up the unauthorized story of Walt Disney's Haunted Mansion? Yeah, just go to doombuggies.com slash book. Um, and that'll take you to an ordering link. I mean, you can find it on Amazon, of course. Um, and there's a Kindle version and a normal paperback version. And, uh, yeah, uh, find it on Amazon. Excellent. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you for joining us during this holiday season to share stories about the haunted mansion with our listeners yeah absolutely it's been my pleasure always fun to talk about the haunted mansion thank you and we we hope we'll have you back on the show maybe to talk about the uh the haunted mansion holiday sometime absolutely let's during the christmas season <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah when it's most appropriate right <laughs> yes well thank you again absolutely my pleasure We'll continue our Halloween celebration in our next episode, so be sure to dust off the cobwebs and join us. Now it's time for Craig to materialize and begin to vocalize for This Week in Disney History. All right, Craig, well, here we are. Gosh, we're in the last week of October. It's October 25th, so are you... You all set? I, you, you, I, did you, as good as I can be. Okay. Well, you know, open up that bag of Halloween candy a little early and that'll give you some, <laughs> you know, some, some energy there. Okay. For October 25th, the formal dedication of Walt Disney World takes place with Walt's brother, Roy O. Disney, officiating on October 25th, 1971. The park has been open since October 1st. Who stood alongside Roy O. Disney during the dedication in Town Square? I, I, it was Mickey Mouse. That's right, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Mickey Mouse was there because Roy said it's he. It's like having Walt there. Yeah, I, so. I just almost threw myself for a loop. I'm like thinking, like I, we've all seen the photos a hundred times, mm-hmm. uh, but then it was playing with my mind, thinking of the uh, thinking of the bench statue with Minnie, and I was like, no, it's Mickey. It's Mickey. It's it's mm-hmm. got to be Mickey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. So I know I'm, it's funny. I'm thinking, okay, should should we all be there on October first next year? For, you know, to celebrate the 50th anniversary, 50th anniversary, or should we be there October 25th when there'll probably be less crowds? Yeah. I, <laughs> you know, if, if if everything keeps going the way it is right now, I don't know what they're even going to do for the, the 50th. There's not going to be a special parade. There's not going to be a special fireworks show if everything continues on like it is now. So what, what what's it going to be? Are they going to just give you a they'll, button and a map and say, here you go? Yeah, they'll make you 50 cupcakes. <laughs> they'll make 50 cupcakes and you'll have to get in line at the bakery. <laughs> yep. I think Disneyland did something screwy like that one year. They did made like 200 cupcakes for something. and It was ridiculous. Anyway, all right. October 26th. On October 26th, 1997, 
ABC TV's The Wonderful World of Disney airs a movie that is an early attempt at turning a theme park attraction into a movie. What is the name of this classic television film? I'm... Oh, um, uh, Tower of Terror. That's right. One of your favorite holiday films. Yes, starring Steve Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst, a disgraced reporter investigates an abandoned luxury hotel where five people mysteriously disappeared 60 years earlier. I always forget about that. I haven't, I haven't watched it in years. I actually don't own the DVD of it. And of course, it's still not been added to Disney Plus. So I, I have distinct memories of it, but it's probably been. 10, 15 years since I've actually watched it. I have never seen it. Hey, you're not missing much. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping it added to Disney Plus so that I could finally see it. <clears throat> All right, October 27th. On October 27th, 1954, Walt Disney's very first television series, Walt Disney's Disneyland, named after his yet-to-completed park, premieres on ABC. About 30.8 million American viewers tune in to what will be a television tradition for more than 40 years. What is the name of this first episode? It's it's an easy one. I thought for a second you were going to ask me to name every single person who watched it that night. But, uh, <laughs> That's was... the bonus question. <laughs> we were doing points. Yeah, that 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 would be a tough one. But uh, the first episode's the Disneyland story. That's right. Now the bonus question would have been, "What day of the week is this?" What day of the week was it? It wasn't Wednesday. Sunday, was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah. That wasn't till uh, later on. Yeah. No, it was Wednesday. That's a good day of the week. Yeah. So, in you're right. It's the Disneyland story. First viewers are given a quick tour of the Walt Disney Studios and then are introduced to Walt Disney's newest project, a theme park called Disneyland. This episode is the public's first real exposure to Walt Disney's plans for a park in Anaheim. The episode also features the song, The Ballad of Davy Crockett, sung by Fess Parker as a coming attraction for the upcoming Davy Crockett trilogy. Okay, October 28th. On October 28th, 2017, Walt Disney broke ground on a new attraction that was canceled less than a year later after being omitted from Disney's updated construction permits for the park it was being built in. What was this attraction? Um, I, you said 2017? Yes. I think this would have been our, uh, our Main Street Theater. Correct. That's right. A Broadway-style theater located near the Main Street USA section of the Magic Kingdom in an area currently used as a backstage parking lot for cast members. It would have been based on the Willis Woods Theater, which stood in Kansas City when Walt Disney lived there in the 1920s. And the theater was supposed to host Broadway-style shows. I think it's a shame they never built this. It It is. Uh, I mean, it if it would have obviously come to fruition then i think we'd be in a very similar to spot right now to what is uh what happened out at california adventure like with frozen closing down it uh it, it that park so it's it, 
maybe it's a good thing that it didn't actually get built for for now maybe it can still come back one day when when the company's in a different place and the world's in a different place because i i was on board from it from the start Mm -hmm. i i was i was eager for it it wasn't it's not the most exciting announcement that they they had ever made at, at a presentation but still it could have added it could have added a nice people eater to Magic Kingdom. I agree. Which, of course, you can never have too many of those in that park with the, I agree. the capacity. And it would have been popular because of air conditioning. Yep. <laughs> as well. So, um, yeah. And every, I, I feel every castle park needs to have a place where you can see a show, a character show, or, or something. And yeah. I mean, even Disneyland does with its Fantasyland Theater. Yeah, and I am very adamant about my dislike of of the castle shows at Magic Kingdom. So yeah. anything that can still have that show element that's not necessarily animatronics like Country Bears or or Tiki Room or Carousel of Progress, but can have actual real people uh, being on a stage and shining like that. Like I'm all for that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay, October 29th. Disney's latest animated film debuted in United States theaters on October 29th, 1993. Disney has decided to release the film under their Touchstone Pictures banner because they believe the film might be too dark and scary for kids. That's a quote. What is the title of this film? I, I'm glad we got to your one uh, tie-in with uh-huh. this week's episode <laughs> here. So that's uh, that, of course, is Nightmare Before Christmas. That's right. That's right. That's why I chose this to tie it in. This, of course, is a stop-motion animated musical dark fantasy film directed by Henry Selleck. It's produced and conceived by Tim Burton, released by Touchstone Pictures. The story of Jack Skellington being from Halloween Town, who opens a portal to Christmas Town. The idea for the film started as a poem Burton wrote while working as an animator at Disney in the early 1980s. I have the book that they put out, the poem years ago, for this that I put out at Christmas time. Yeah, I have. I do have a, a Nightmare Before Christmas shelf on my on my bookshelf in my office here, so I always have the book displayed on that. So I I have got it. I could literally grab it from where I'm sitting if my arm was another foot longer. <laughs> Okay, October 30th, Walt Disney's fourth silly symphony cartoon, Hell's Bells, is released on October 30th, 1929. This short marked a first in the career of animator of iWorks. What was this first? Mm, I think... I think you might have finally stumped me on this one. Mm. Well... It was his first directorial outing at Disney. Hell's wow. Bells was directed by animator Ub Iwerks. And this short features the devils of hell gathering together for a mad frolic. With music by Carl Stalling, Hell's Bells is animated with disturbing, that's in quotations, mm-hmm. but imagine amazing imageries not typically found in Walt Disney family-oriented shorts of this era. 
Yeah, it's you just. I I don't want to say this in a mean way to of iWorks. I I don't want him to hold it against me ever. But I I don't think of him as a director. I think of him, you know, for his effects and just his mm-hmm. standard animation, not necessarily directing. So uh, that uh, that's a good good one to throw in there. Yeah, yeah, and it goes with the season too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, October thirty first. What is the significance of the date, October 31st, 1939? uh, It was a Halloween night. That's correct. What does (laughs) that have to do with Disney? Uh, That's the (laughs) night that uh, Tower of Terror takes place. That's right. This is, I think I ask you this every year. (laughs) This is the date of the fateful elevator accident at the Tower of Terror, Disney's scary attraction at Disney Hollywood Studios. This is also the date inscribed on the eviction notice posted on the entrance gates and on an inspection notice in one of the elevators. So, very good, Craig. And it also is, in fact, Halloween. Yes, it is. I did lots of research on that and found it out. (laughs) Well done. Well done. You'll be taking (laughs) over the show soon. (laughs) Since we're in the Halloween spirit, I mentioned a few episodes back that I've been watching the classic Universal Studio monster films, you know, and I've also been watching the original Adams Family television series from the 1960s. And I decided that Adam and Morticia Adams were, or Gomez, I should say, and Morticia Adams were the most romantic of the 60s sitcom couples. I would actually agree with that. And I obviously I didn't watch every single show that was, in the sixties, but there's a there's a true passion between them. Mm-hmm. It's a fun show. It is just so clever. Yeah, I did not watch it growing up. I I watched the Munsters all the time because that was on Nick at Night. But Adam's Family, I don't think I I actually watched an episode of the 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 tv show until i was you know already at least a teenager if not an adult uh completely just because i i had never had access before i think it was once it was on one of the streaming services was when i finally got to discover it and you know i grew up with the the movies which i thought i think are are still wonderful but the show just is so entertaining it is it's a good show yeah, I remember I, I watched it when I was when it first ran. I was a boy and I remember that was one of the shows that when I got home from swimming and my mother always made me a big bowl of oatmeal for some reason when I got home. Oatmeal and toast. <laughs> I guess it was to rejuvenate me or something. And um and I would watch the Adams family on one of the nights after swim practice. And um and my mother made the oatmeal the old-fashioned way. So it was really lumpy, like wallpaper paste. Yeah. Just put a little milk in it. I loved it. I still eat it that way. So, um, and um, yeah, so I watched The Adams Family. So it was great. So so I'm having fun watching it here and there. Good. So anyway. And um, well, you know, we're talking about Disneyland, you know, in this episode. And on the date we're recording this episode, um, California Governor Gavin Newsom released his edict for the reopening of theme parks in California. And I, I think it's safe to say I don't have to worry about making plans to travel to Disneyland in December. Yeah, it's I know we we've talked about this on and off 
with this show and the, will it happen in 2020? Will it be 2021? And I, I, I am starting to believe that some people may even be correct when they say that Disneyland could be closed for a complete year and that it will not open up past. Yeah. I, I'm getting, I, I don't want to say concerned because that's not the right word for it. I'm concerned for all the cast members that this impacts in the economy of Anaheim and, and everyone who lives in that area and all the businesses that, that rely on tourism to come there. But it's, yeah, it's just, it's wild. It, I, I'm all for safety. Obviously, I've, I've preached that on every show I'm on, but this is turning into a head scratcher more mm-hmm. than anything. <laughs> well, he keeps moving the, the goalposts too. At first, we didn't want, you know, he had all these rules because he didn't want the hospitals overwhelmed. Well, they didn't get overwhelmed. So then it was, we had to level it out you know, the number of cases and all that. Well, then we leveled it out. Well, then it had to be where we had no deaths or no cases and whatever. So then we started to get to that goalpost. And now he's saying it's not until we're not going to reopen until there's a vaccine. Yeah. And I thought, you know, you can't keep moving the goalpost. And, and all that. And he says it's based on science, but he seems to be, and I don't, you know, this isn't a political show, so I don't want to get into it too much, but he seems to rely on the science that agrees with his opinion. <laughs> so, and, um, rather than looking at what all science is saying. So. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's, it's one of those situations where there are there's so many confusing aspects of it because it's it also then like part of the the statements that were made on it today is like even if Disneyland and the other theme parks are able to make it to that yellow point where they're able to reopen with 25% capacity it's then the wording with it is also he basically can can rule that back if if he feels like something if the the cases are starting to get bad it's not looking like it's going to be favorable that he can just shut everything right back down again which i mean that's Mm -hmm. that is something that i feel like should be considered but uh it's also you know to reopen and give people hope and people start planning vacations and then to have it potentially be canceled like that's just that it ends up just really looking even worse in the long run. And, you know, if, if California doesn't spike in cases, if we don't get this fall spike or winter spike that could potentially happen, then it's just, it, it's going to be another moment of sitting here saying, why can't, why can't we get these people back at Disneyland back to work? And it, it you know, I understand if it's unsafe to don't put people in harm's way, but I, I feel like I feel like Disneyland and the Walt Disney Company has a great plan in place. I feel like all the theme parks do. The ones who have already opened to do these food festivals and such like knots, they all have they all have the right idea of what they need to do. And it's almost it, it just from the outsider perspective of not living there, it it's just it, it almost looks like it's that that person who doesn't trust their kid 
to walk across the street unless you're holding their hand. And, you know, they're Disneyland's Disneyland 65 years old. They're more than capable of walking across the street now. But yeah. Well, and, you know, of course, it's in Disneyland's best interest to make sure every safety measure possible is in place. Yeah. You know, they're not going to take any shortcuts. Yeah. And I just like just some of the decisions being made into it is just it's almost it's almost a slap in the face to Disneyland uh, and Universal in particular. Like I, I haven't been to Six Flags in California, so I can't speak on on that park and I can speak on most of knots. I've experienced pretty much everything there. Uh, without uh, with the exception of a couple things but like with the the order in there about no queuing in indoors like i just think about how many attractions at disneyland that you just you wipe out luckily a lot of queues are completely outdoors but there's a lot that aren't and so how how do you even make that work and universal's the same way how do you make that work so it's just it, it's wild i feel I feel I feel bad for y'all. So yeah, and remember, he wants to run for president, gang. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Anyway, all right. End of end of the political discussion. Okay, uh, just a reminder of a couple of events: Give Kids the World Night of a Million Lights. There's tickets still running for that. Uh, November thirteenth, twenty twenty, through. January 3rd, 2021. I saw, um, Corey Fiasco's, uh, journey on the, um, cherry picker. Yeah. That video. So has Dreams Unlimited Travel and, uh, moving to Orlando decorated their villas yet? I, uh, that is a great question for someone who is not me, but <laughs> I, I know that they, uh, I know that they, we made our decisions on, what was being put up. I'm not sure if oh, it was good. actually put up yet, though. That's exciting. That, that must have been fun to decide that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to ruin any surprises with it. But I, I will just say it, it made me laugh that, you know, Give Kids the World did ask, like, well, do we want do we want our colors to reflect our brand? So that way uh, that way people will know, like, oh, that's clearly, that's clearly Dreams Unlimited Travel and such. And lime green. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say what, ha I will say that Pete said no to that, that he does not <laughs> want the company colors to represent, uh, what's, what's on there, but I'm not gonna say what he chose for it. But yeah, so if you're going around looking, Looking for our places. Don't expect the purple and yellow for moving to Orlando. Don't expect the blue and color scheme for dreams or even the lime green for the Diz. It's you're not going to find you're not going to be able to find us based on that. But I'm sure okay. they'll put a sign out front, maybe. Right? That seems I'm, smart. Oh, there must be. <laughs> there must be. So because you have to vote. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway all right and then there is the Diz family reunion 2021 um put on by give kids the world march 25th to the 27th 2021 at the contemporary resort and uh, i will see you there so we'll have links for tickets in um in our show notes for that too and then of course we're still working on story time with michael we are communicating regularly with our 
artists, but um, who are illustrating the stories based on Andrew Lang's Blue Fairy Tales book that is at Project Gutenberg. Um, there, if you're an artist who, or someone who's interested in, in illustrating um, our remaining stories, it's just uh, Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red. Please send an email to both Craig and I, and we will tell you more about how you can get involved this way with connecting with Walt. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? You can find me on the different uh, social media places that I always say every week. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Teleclaster. The random shows that I'm on on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. And then by emailing me, Craig, at WDWinfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowlingthediz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives, my Disney history episodes, on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.